The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 109 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, and I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and other my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence or privilege to a resort to my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap tonight's show. Get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show, get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we had another great show last week with the managing director of the risk and security search practice over at Quantum Search Partners, Steven Spagnolo. And, and Steve, I've known Steve for a very long time. It was a great conversation. And I, I thought that was one of the, you know, it, it's just, we like to keep it authentic here, right? That was an authentic interview. All right. It was good. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was honest. It was transparent. Um, and that's why I think people listen to us. I think that's why people trust us. And Steve gave us a really good insight into what's going on in the cybersecurity job market, especially with, uh, I guess, the disproportional amount of, of jobs that are open uh, from the lower level to the mid-level as compared to the senior level uh, positions right now. And then also, he also uh, gave us insight into so some of the young folks, you know, moving around a lot, if that's going to hurt them in the future, right? I mean, what is the real, is there any sort of validity around the notion that if you're moving around too much? that looks bad on, on your resume. Because as you know right now, I mean, there's people, especially the younger folks, they're moving every two years, especially in the financial sector. They're going from, you know, Morgan and Goldman and back over to, you know, JP. And they're, look, they're getting, you know, 40, 50% pops doing that. Um, and at some point, you know, how can you blame them? I mean, if they know how to game the system, right? If they know how to work it, you know, people are, you know, people are going to get mad at that. Well, it's not about that. It's about working for the company and doing all this, look, look. Stop. Stop. Okay. It's about optimizing your financial potential over time. And the greatest loyalty that you have is to your own family. Okay. And if you're going to put an organization above your own family, then something's wrong with you. All right. I love, I, I hate when they, I hear executives have these kind of conversations and uh, we're only five minutes into the show. I'm getting myself all wound up already, but I, but I think you, you could, you know, I think it was a great interview. And I think if you missed it, you really, really like listening to him because we talked about everything. We talked about diversity. We talked about, uh, you know, how people should create relationships with recruiters and how recruiters have to build relationships and how long it takes. You know, it takes years and years and years to build these types of relationships and build a, a solid professional network that really is useful to you and others too, right? Because it's all about providing value. When you're building relationships, you're going to do a lot more giving than you're, t- than you're taking, trust me, all right? And, and a lot of people aren't used to that. You just got you just got to get used to it. You got to, you know, uh, you know uh, 
understand that, you know, stop selling yourself all the time and start providing value and then you can build that network, right? So if you missed it, it's last week's episode, episode number 108 with Steven Spagnolo, the Managing Director of Risk and Security, uh, the Risk and Security Search Practice at Quantum Search Partners. You, you won't be disappointed, trust me. Go back and take a look. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And I tell you what, we have a very, very special guest coming up in the next few weeks and you're going to be really excited about it. Um, I'm not going to announce it this week. Uh, I was going to, but I, I figure I'm, I'm going to wait a little bit, and uh, and then we'll announce it soon. But it's going to be really exciting. I promise you, you're going to like it. Uh, we're on at least 12, 11 different, well, 12, I think, at least 12 different playback mediums now. It was 11 before, but I think we're on 12. And we made it easy for you to find them all. You just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe right to our show uh, right from the TF7 radio site, which we think is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Yes, we do. So we have a great show for you this evening, folks. we got Kate Fizzini coming back on the show to be with us, and I love when she comes on. As you probably already know, Kate is a cybersecurity reporter for one of the biggest TV networks on the planet. She covers cybersecurity for CNBC. And before joining CNBC, she most recently covered cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal Pro Cybersecurity. So prior to that, she worked in the cybersecurity field and roles in a promontory financial group as well as J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, where we work together uh, over on our own Park Avenue. And Kate holds a master's degree in cybersecurity strategy from the George Washington University, and she serves as an adjunct professor in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown University, as well as the Cybersecurity Program at the University of Maryland. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, my friend and CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So Kate, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey George, it's great to be back. Hey, I'm really excited to have you. We've got some really interesting topics to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to first to kick off the show by talking about this uh, financial industry yearly cyber exercise that for the first time had international participants in it. And I think this is very interesting and in, in how it went. And I think talking about the value of this exercise and sometimes, you know, um, how we can improve upon it. And if it, you know, in, in actually understanding what the return is on, on these exercises is really important. So what was the scenario that they practiced in this exercise? So this year, and I thought this was really interesting, and, and by the way, uh, this is put on by a, an organization called SIFMA. Um, I know a lot of our, our your listeners, of course, are uh, familiar with FSI. SIFMA is the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, so it includes a lot of um, hedge funds as well and a lot of other kind of financial institutions. Um, but w what they did this year uh, was practice um, an international wave of ransomware that uh, had significant knock-on impacts across the financial sector. And I, I thought that was really interesting because um, you, you know, 
it's been two years since uh, NotPetya and uh, WannaCry, the really big ransomware attacks that, that kind of fell into this model. And, and it's obviously something that not only are we still worried about, but our biggest institutions are still worried about and so worried about that um, this is what they wanted to put front and center for this year. So why ransomware? Do you think this is the number one concern in the finance industry right now? I mean, I think, um, I don't know if it's the number one concern in finance, but I think it's it's shown, it's proven itself to be, um, continue to be enormously destructive in ways that su continue to surprise us. So um, even in 2017, when we had uh, WannaCry and NotPatcha, these, these global attacks that just skipped from one company to another, um, sort of moving around like a, a a worm and and not like a you know targeted ransomware attack um, to the there have been a number of attacks in Florida where these cities were shut down um, where it, and across the United States there was a, a flurry of attacks um, in Texas on school districts um, there have been attacks that have closed down school districts so it's it's just there's I think that the financial industry recognizes that, um, you know, while a lot of big banks are obviously poised uh, to be resilient in a ransomware attack, there are just ways that this particular threat um, surprise us every time. And it, it can really uh, spread faster than we might be expecting. Yeah, and I think this is kind of an important threat in the sense that it's actually put people's lives at risk in terms of 911 yes. services and things like that. Like you said, down in Baltimore, and there's been some other instances hospitals, you know, have to move people and things like that. One of the things though I found interesting is that, you know, finance was probably the best poised to defend, excuse me, defend against something like this, right? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Right, I mean, they, you know, they have all the business continuity and resiliency uh, uh, structure up and, and, you know, they could easily just send backups and things like that. But so how do you think it went over with, the, with finance, this type, of, uh, this type of attack? Because I know you know, there has been some instances that I know of where ransomware has hit some of the banks and, you know, they've managed it very aggressively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I think, you know, in some ways too, ransomware is is the start of this, but what, what the financial firms were really trying to do was, um, this was the first year that they looped in uh, Asia Pacific participants and, and European participants and did it as an international exercise, um, in, including regulators internationally who, who participated in this and, and discussed, um, you know, in, in the event of this attack that, that, that jumps from the United States to Asia to Europe and back to the United States, um, what would the role of each one of these regulators be in that situation? Um, I think it was a way for them to let everybody kind of have a voice and, and see how they uh, would be communicating well. Now, they're going to be doing um, a follow-up report discussing some of the, uh, you know, pluses and minuses, and I assume some of the communication failure points or concerns that they have. I think that will be a really interesting document um, to, to get an idea of uh, what they think might have gone wrong in, in their communications in this scenario. So for some of the folks out there that might not be so familiar with some of these wargaming exercises, why is it so important to conduct these exercises and, and, and on such a grand scale? Um, I, I mean, this is, you know, it's for many different reasons. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about these really big potential incidents that um, 
like sometimes they're called black swan events that are uh, just really significant and have a serious impact um, that, that could, you know, spook the financial markets and cause a run on banks and cause uh, additional what they would call contagion into other industries that would really hurt um, the economy. Um, they have to be prepared for this sort of event. I mean, you see the financial crisis of, of 2007, 2008. Um, there have been a number of uh, cyber attacks that have had a f like really quick effects on the market. A couple of years ago, I, I think you'll probably remember this, but somebody um, uh, kind of a, it wasn't even, I think it was a jokester of some type had, had taken over the White House Twitter account and tweeted out that there had, or I'm sorry, not the White House Twitter account, but um, one of the uh, wire services, one of the big wire services, I think it was the Associated Press, um, took over their Twitter account and tweeted out there had been a bomb at the White House. And the immediate effect of that was that the markets um, took a, a, a very significant crash which, within a few seconds. So we know that if, you know, one of these events has some kind of significant impact, the markets get spooked, you have all of these um, rapid fire uh, trading algorithms working, there's not even people behind them, um, you know, there, there's the possibility that something could cause a really significant impact. So, I mean, obviously they're going to have to practice what they would do in that situation to calm the markets, to keep things moving, um, to inject capital into a bank that, um, you know, they, they lost access to their balance statements or, or whatever it is. Um, they're going to need to have a plan so that, that we don't have a major international impact. So when I think about, you know, some of this, you know, preparation, it's all about prepare, train, you know, war game and, and just kind of make sure that you're ready for what you don't know is coming, right? And I think one of the biggest, I, I think, successes and I guess victories in sort of the the resiliency space is when Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast mm -hmm. and the Goldman Sachs building was just sitting there and it was all lit up. It had the power to the whole building was up and the entire island in, in Manhattan and so southern Manhattan at least was, was dark and it was mm -hmm. the only building. And that just goes to show you that when, you know, the, the importance of these exercises but also it kind of uh, vets out some of the people who aren't prepared. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of them, right? And so I think the, the uh, it's varied. It's varied when we ask ourselves, hey, are we prepared for a, a cyber 9-11? Are we prepared? And, and I think the answer is some of us may be uh, prepared somewhat and some of us definitely not. Right. Um, so what do you think their pitfalls are to, to these types of exercises and, and how they're conducted? Well, I think I'm glad you bring up the term cyber 9-11 because um, I've, I've written about, you know, what is it, what would a cyber 9-11 look like? And I've, I, I received a lot of criticism for it um, from people who are like, well, that those things would never happen. Really? Um, you know, that's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. <laughs> a lot. Um, there's a lot of people saying, you know, that this catastrophic stuff. Now, I, I agree that sometimes the catastrophic catastrophizing doesn't really help. But um, at the same time, as, as you, of course, are aware, uh, that the term 9-11 exists here because 9-11 um, was an attack that if you had told anybody in 2000 that that was going to happen, um, they would have said, you're crazy. And, you know, there are lots of pieces and parts of that that physical attack in 9-11 that, that were totally unanticipated, that if, if you brought them all together later on, it makes sense. But, you know, you have these people taking flying lessons in Arizona, and it, it maybe doesn't make sense, but, um, you know, why would, 
it doesn't seem to matter until later on. So I think in these scenarios, you know, the, the weaknesses in them will always be that, um, you know, you have this huge universe of, of third-party providers. Um, they're not going to be involved in SIFMA's scenario. You have uh, numerous different uh, financials, uh, like software providers, everybody's using somebody different. You have the cloud service providers, they can have issues. Um, they, if, if every single person is not involved, there's going to be something that you haven't calculated in. And so um, the weakness is, is, of course, they can't have every third party be involved. They can't have every scenario um, be involved. And it's, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I hate to say this but because it's sort of off topic, but I, I spent the weekend watching um, Bernie Madoff documentaries. So I had that in my head, but, but that was so huge. And, and yet the financial services industry missed it, right? It's maybe $50 billion. Um, if they can miss something like that, uh, they can miss you know, a contingency that would turn into a major cyber event. So I think that that's one of the weaknesses of it. Yeah, of course. And I think too, I think when, when these internal working exercises are conducted, in large companies. I think you'll find that people in different departments react very differently and they have a very different perception about who's in charge of what. Mm. <laughs> now, who is the critical decision maker uh, that, make, that determines whether the, the retail uh, online uh, site goes down or not? Uh, they have to take it offline. Who, who's, who actually makes that decision? I mean, I think it, internally, at least that I found after working for two of the top, you know, the, uh, biggest banks in the, in yes, the country. I think these, you know, it, when you do the exercises, everyone has a very different perception of uh, the authority that they have in terms of making <laughs> decisions and, and cyber events. And then, and then what happens after that, it gets vetted out and then, and then you have a decision tree and everybody gets clarity on what their role is and what they're supposed to do and how to decide. And then you really start talking about uh, what are, what, what, what decisions can you make? You know, what decisions can you make? And I think there's at one point that we were, uh, when I was over at City, we were working on something um, with, with another company that had uh, the war game exercises on the iPads. And they were doing, basically, they were gamifying it for executives. And so executives were getting used to, okay, if A happens, then I have all these options. If B happens, then I have all these options. And then what options would be, and then they would choose it, and then it would kind of play out in the game, and they would get used to making bad decisions, good decisions, that type of thing. So I think this, the more wargaming, the, the better, I think, especially on a, on a grand scale like this, uh, it's important. Now, how do they circumvent, uh, circumnavigate, I should say, the, the risk of exposing too much information to outside entities outside the United States when they do these wargaming exercises with them? Yeah, that's that's was an interesting question. You know, I, I, um, I was thinking as I was listening because they had a press call uh, after the event to discuss it and, you know, they discuss all of the, um, the scenario and, and what, what it entailed, but, but they didn't give like a lot of details because there, there's like certain things they won't release to, to media about, you know, what, what right. goes on in these. Um, and, and I thought, um, you know, but you were looping in like all of the, you know, APAC, folks and uh, the people in Asia Pacific who um, there's some there's some big intelligence you know obviously right now there's a lot of issues with um, uh, some of the countries in the Asia Pacific region and how much uh, we really want them to know about our capabilities and our weaknesses um, I think it makes uh, you know I, I, I do believe that we have to have a, a, work, a strong working relationship um, with all of the banks um, including the banks in Asia but it is also 
it, it must be a very, very tricky relationship to manage, um, you know, if you don't know who uh, the identity of every single person listening into that call and participating and um, who, who is going to get the information about, for instance, um, one of the banks or one of the participants who was particularly bad at this exercise. Um, do you want that information in the hands of, uh, you know, <laughs> right. a foreign right. intelligence agents? Yeah. And that's going to happen immediately if they're taking part. So I thought that, I think that's probably an interesting line. However, I, I just, I, I'm not qualified to, to say what a solution to that is. Um, I just think it's an interesting dynamic. All right, folks, we've got to transition to a commercial break right here, but stick with us. We've got a lot more to come with Kate Fazzini from CNBC. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram. Got a lot of people following us on Instagram, a few thousand, I think. it's. I mean, it's great for Instagram. You think a radio show would do good on Instagram? Well, I think we'd probably do better on Instagram than some of the other platforms. We should probably focus on that more. Um, so for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with quick messages from our sponsors, and then we're right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. 
For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, I, uh, yeah, we were talking over the break about some of the different scenarios in some of the different sectors. And um, for the energy sector, which is a very, very important sector, um, which a lot can happen in a cyber attack when we talk about major catastrophic attacks, what was their scenario that they were playing with? So, uh, yeah, to step back, um, so there's uh, also uh, the um, the there's an organization called NERC that puts on a, a, a exercise called Grid X, which takes place every two years. Uh, interestingly, that and the, the SIFMA event, um, they, they p- took place within um, just really a few days of each other. So, um, you know, we have these two major events, several thousand uh, participants on the energy sector side. Um, and what was uh, really interesting about the energy sector event, so, so here's what they they war-gamed um, in their scenario. Uh, it was a, a major cyber attack that involved um, both physical and cyber elements um, that was uh, took out um, part of the, the grid in the northeast United States, um, where uh, we all reside, uh, you and I, <laughs> um, and uh, had a knock-on effects all the way up to Canada, which is interconnected with our grid, and uh, all the way into the financial sector. And they had some participation, um, again, from the financial sector. So I thought uh, that was interesting that um, they've had two years to plan, and and what were they most worried about? Um, It was the, you know, not as much the energy grid, but what will the energy grid impact if there is a a major cyber event uh, against that infrastructure? So um, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I guess when, when you're unable to move money, even from, you know, like, for instance, people take for granted the massive amounts of money that move from the government to the states to fund the states through bonds and other things. I mean, it's just astronomical. And if that was interrupted, even for a day, even mm-hmm. for a day, I mean, after Hurricane Sandy, and I mentioned this before on the show a few times, within 48 hours, people were pulling guns on each other at gas stations. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. I'm I'm really glad that you bring up Hurricane Sandy because on the uh, on the GridX uh, call for media, they discussed how. Um, you know, this, the, as they do these scenarios, they actually have considered uh, the weather events that have had major impacts on either the energy sector or other sectors. Um, and I think that that is, you know, that's where we are with cybersecurity today. Um, would a major uh, cyber attack look that different um, from a hurricane in one part of the world? I, I think that they're saying, you know, no, it probably wouldn't. It would be, um, we would try to do, you know, resiliency in, in much the same way as if we had a bunch of substations flooded. So um, I, I think they're definitely considering that as, you know, at least they have a response in mind for that kind of event. You know, it's interesting because you can learn from even the, the smallest uh, of incidents. When, when Hurricane Sandy happened, we had no power and we had a generator that was um, generating the house. I was renting a home at, at one time. It was a rather, rather large home. And I had to go and and you know get gas for the generator i was lucky i was one of the lucky ones that had a generator first of all mm -hmm. all right that's a whole nother story okay but i had it i had a generator and i had to actually drive like a half hour maybe 40 minutes into pennsylvania to get oh gas. wow where are you in, are you in mid, are you in the middle of new jersey i'm in north jersey so oh. yeah so at the time i was living in morris county and I would just, you know, shoot out Route 80 and go all the way out to Pennsylvania and then go into Pennsylvania because everybody else was doing the same thing because you just could not get any gas. And then you had the governor of Pennsylvania ordering the state police to arrest people that were loading their pickup trucks up with gas. You know, if you look, if you were lucky to have a gas can at that time, I mean, you couldn't find a gas can anywhere, right? And it just looked so lucky that, you know, obviously I had a bunch of different gas cans and. And you would take every gas can you had, the smallest to the largest, right? And just put it in the truck, drive out there just so you can make sure that your family, you know, uh, you know had power, had, had food, uh, that could keep warm, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, I was one of the lucky ones. I was oh, one yeah. of the lucky ones. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, so, you know, the governor of New Jersey screaming at the governor of Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's like, you're not going to arrest any of my citizens for trying to get gas. Like, it's just absurd because you're bringing the gas across state lines, I guess there's you know, laws against that, right? So, but it just goes to show you that if you prepare for these things, um, you know, uh, it, it has a lot of value. So I think there's a common theme here. Everybody's worried about moving the money, right? Everybody's worried about the, the financial sector. Does it tell us that the financial sector's not prepared or does it tell us that they're just worried about making sure that, you know, the money can move so everybody, you know, uh, you know, we keep, uh, keep everybody, you know, going at the same time, right? Everybody. And I think it's, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think it's definitely just um, that we recognize that if if something happened and, and there was a shutdown in the in the banking sector that people would panic as and that there's a historical reference for that now if people lose their power um, even if they lose it for a week if they lose it for more than a week after Sandy there are plenty of people in that situation you, you still don't see people panicking you don't see them you know in, in your case you, you know the, the gas situation was kind of close to that um so you know i i like that you discussed this because i think in in a you know commensurate situation in in a cyber attack it was a financial attack you would have the same sort of sort of political infighting and people running to blame each other. We see this at companies when there's a, a cyber attack. You know, it, it's it, what is, I think, a weakness, again, in these scenarios is you have all these people on the phone and they're very genteel and they're saying, all right, now, Jim, um, 
you know, if, if this were happening, I would call you and we would agree to, uh, you know, shut down the substation and then we would put this back up. Um, that's fine. But when these things actually happen, you're going to have governors yelling at each other. You're going to have Jamie Dimon screaming at Treasury. Um, you know, you, there's going to be a lot of political uh, rancor happening that, that you, you just can't plan for. And, and that can actually... You know, if people are getting arrested, if they're pulling guns out at the gas stations, um, you know, the same kind of thing would happen at the banks. Um, you, you just, you can't control for uh, that kind of madness. And I think that that's, you know, I, I think the scenarios are great. I think it's great to practice them. But, uh, you know, if these things actually happen, it, things often work out very differently. Yeah, and I think things can go bad very quickly. It's not going to take very long for these things to happen. For instance, you know, you know, it, it, you watch scenarios where there's runs on banks and ATMs are empty. And I don't think it's going to take months for that to happen. Not, not even close. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. And I think that that sort of panic and fear spreads quickly and that's a bad thing. And so you want to prevent that from happening. Now you mentioned before that the, the, the energy sector has this exercise, but they have it over only every two years. I mean, is that enough? I mean, I think I, I don't know why they have it every two years and that didn't come up on, on the call at least, uh, for as long as I was on it um, and it, it isn't something that I've asked I should probably ask it but uh, I, I do think that it should happen more often um, I think it's worthwhile to do um, these these practices to at a regional level um, given the way that the grid is is laid out um, you know with with lots of like regional hubs um, I think uh, I don't know how, how often that's taking place but I I think once every two years probably isn't enough um, for considering, you know, like let's say in 2016, um, you know, the threat landscape was very different than it was in 2017 after we had those major ransomware attacks. Things shifted really dramatically within a year. Um, they can shift very dramatically within a matter of months in terms of you were, you were worried about one thing, now you're worried about another. A, a great example um, in the energy sector is uh, I think it was I think it was in 2018. Um, I might be wrong, but there uh, there had been some research that that uncovered um, a a malware attack that was uh, taking place in the Middle East on the backup safety systems uh, for oil and gas um, facilities. So it was somebody who was trying to override that system. So if there had been a catastrophic accident, the safety system, you know, if you, if you watch the like Chernobyl movie, um, the button that you push to shut things down if there's a major incident would not work. Now, before that, nobody had considered that somebody might be messing around with that particular thing. Um, overnight, they found out about that. And so I think that, you know, when something new is uncovered like that, the industry um, should be able to, you know, quickly react and, and understand the, the world looks different now. Here's how we will respond to this type of incident. So when we do these exercises, historically they're done via conference call or sort of like a virtual, uh, they're a virtual wargaming exercise and they're done over the phone. Uh, much of it's done over the phone. Is that effective? I think it's effective um, for uncovering communication problems. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, you miss a lot. Uh, you certainly miss the physical aspect of it. You certainly miss people um, running to the ATMs and pulling guns on each other. And um, that usually isn't a part of this scenario, um, thankfully. Uh, and, and I think... Um, 
You know, one of the things that you miss, and Jorn, you can probably speak to this even better than I can, is the the undercurrent of the incident. So there's the people talking on the bridge calls, and then there's the people texting each other behind the scenes. Um, the the people who are on Signal or uh, whatever, you know, private texting service and saying like, okay, man, here's what's really going on. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, right. here's so-and-so packed his bags and he's like out of his office. Um, th- that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, he's already, he's already going to, you know, France. So, uh, you know, that kind of stuff happens. So it's, you obviously can't plan for that, but that is always the undercurrent of one of these incidents. Um, and then of course people like me bugging people on LinkedIn and saying, Hey, what's really going on over there? Um, sometimes people answer and that, that doesn't usually come up. Uh, yeah, it was funny when we were at JP Morgan Chase together, we discovered the, the our own breach, right? Which we, you know, we're lucky enough to do. And when we started preparing for the response, we were, when everybody went into the, the, the war room, you know, we had this nice, beautiful war room and it was brand new. And, you know, um, we had the facilities to make sure that we were up and running. But what we realized quickly is that everybody sat down at this very large table and uh, started talking on their cell phones because there were no phones in there. <laughs> one phone. <laughs> it's like, all right, we have one phone and we need more than one line. We need actually like 30 lines in here. Right? So I'm looking around, I go, somebody go get us 30 phones and get some lines in here. I mean, so it's kind of like those simple little things that slow you down massively, you know, because yeah. – um, you just didn't think about it beforehand, but these exercises actually weed that kind of stuff out. So is a widespread attack on the energy grid feasible? I mean, you think, I mean, obviously I, I think an attack on any critical sector is feasible, but I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, what, what do you hear in terms of, you know, when you talk to the people in that sector, I mean, what are they talking about? Yeah. I mean, again, and, and I did this. Um, so at CMB, we did a great video interview with um, a number of people from the energy sector to go along with this, uh, d- discussing, you know, what they thought about this. And uh, there's a gentleman named Eddie Habibi, who um, is at a, a company called PAS Global down in Houston, and has, has been in the industry for about 40 years um, in, in specifically uh, what are called SCADA systems, so the systems that run energy plants, um, SCADA system security. He's been uh, started at Schlumberger uh, back in the early 80s. Um, so he's a, a wonderful resource, um, and he, he discusses in the video, you know, um, how, how feasible this can be. And he, you know, and, and also a gentleman named Chris Sistrunk from, from FireEye d- does a demonstration. Um, you know, the, the grid is, is heavily interconnected. Um, it's, it's interconnected by these enormous energy companies and these tiny little co-ops uh, across the United States. Um, you know, that's, it, it introduces both some risk, uh, but there's also the fact that this can, like, these incidents can be contained. So while I think a cyber attack, you know, could take out part of the grid could take out um, maybe even like a small region. Um, I, I do think that based on my conversations with them and, and what I've talked to other people in the industry that um, it's, it's fairly, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's fairly easy to contain these incidents before they spread to like, let's say a massive outage. What, what would really be the problem is if that very contained little area was let's say New York city and the timing was during a very, cold snowstorm, um, that is where you would have um, a significant problem and possibly loss of life. And that, I think, is what a lot of people are focused on. 
sorry for a long-winded answer to what, what no i mean i i personally think that, that the energy sector is very vulnerable and um mm-hmm. and i hate to say that but i mean i i, I just I, I do i think they have a lot of work ahead of them yeah um and it and it's concerning it's concerning and i know the, the energy sector is like well we're worried about finance let me tell you something <laughs> <laughs> i better take a look around their own room i, I you know I, I i just feel that you know they they, they um there's a, there's just a lot of work there to be done. Let's put it that way. And so, you know, when you compare the energy sector to the financial sector, I guess, I mean, how do those comparisons look? I mean, uh, what kind, what, what, and what can we learn from it? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, it's you know they're so different in what they have to worry about. Um, again, the the this, the like operating systems that are used across the energy sector. You're talking about maybe like ten to fifteen different at least like major providers, you know, Honeywell, Siemens, um, Windows, of course, um, they have their own proprietary operating systems. That's, that's a totally, like, it's, it's just a different mindset um, in terms of the vulnerabilities when in, in the financial sector, you're at least kind of working on some uniform platforms and people can, you know, everybody's using AWS, right? So they can at least speak to like the same language. Um, I think that that, is a little bit tougher in the energy sector. Um, I do think the energy sector is probably behind. Um, I, I think everybody's behind finance um, for, for the simple reason that, uh, you know, as you know, of course, Secret Service, uh, you know, was looking at financial fraud way back in the 80s. Um, and financial fraud has always been uh, people worried about where the money's going to go. Um, they're more worried about where the money is going to go than about um, whether their lights are going to turn off. Uh, and by people, I mean the government. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, I think that, you know, for, the, for a very, very long time, theft of money electronically uh, was just the, the worst possible thing that anybody could imagine. And so um, they have had the ability to focus on that for much longer than anybody else, um, even nuclear, even, even some of the really big sectors like that. So I think they're just going to always be far and away ahead of everybody. You know, it's interesting because even during our conversation right now, there's been about five or six times where I've told myself, no, don't say that. Right. <laughs> and, and because I don't want to, you know, scare the crap out of everybody. And, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's hard to talk about these things, especially these catastrophic scenarios. Well, if this could happen, that could happen. And, you know, at, at some point, it, you know, it, 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 it could get out of control, the conversation. Right. Um, but how do you do it without unnecessarily introducing fear in doubt to in people, right? Because right off the bat, there was a few people that told you there's no way we could have this catastrophic cyber 9-11 event that you're talking about. That's not going to happen, which is, you know, that's fantasy. What, they, what they're saying is fantasy, I think. I mean, <laughs> but when, 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 you, when you look at this stuff, it's really hard to really sort of lay it out for people without just unnecessarily invoking this fear. It's, it's tough. It's a hard conversation, though. It is. It's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, it's, you know, uh, I think that um, we see so many, like, outlandish scenarios. And, you know, I think what happens with the, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt thing is that you have a lot of vendors, we talked about this many times, I think every time I come on and we talk about this, but they, they push these kind of, um, they're sort of out of left field. And, and the reason they're out of left field is because media, as I'm a member of media, I know this, um, we want things that are new. And, and that's really tough in cybersecurity because it's always about the same things. Um, and so you, you get a pitch from somebody saying something like, let's say, 
this is not a pitch I would pick up, by the way. I'm saying, uh, <laughs> but get picked up uh, by saying somebody, you know, hacked into a fish a tank at, at a casino, and that's kind of interesting, right? It's it's interesting, um, and it's very scary, and it's like if they can do that, then they can do anything. Um, but you know, the realistic scenario is that while you're worried about the fish tank, you know, you're like business account is probably being drained by somebody doing like a business email compromise, right? Um, and, and that is actually the scary thing. Um, you know, everybody was, is worried about super sophisticated attacks, but um, the majority of the WannaCry attacks across Europe into 2017 um, were on machines running um, Windows 98 uh, uh, or Windows XP, I'm sorry, Windows XP, um, which was you know, terribly outdated. Uh, even I, I think that Microsoft had stopped supporting it um, at, at this point. So, you know, that's that's not sophisticated. That's somebody who hasn't updated their computer um, in in ten years. And I, I think that if you know, introducing fear is something like all of these outlandish things. You know, that you're worried about. It's really basic stuff. And I think just continuing to focus on that is like, look this really basic stuff can lead to something catastrophic. So let's keep focusing on that basic stuff. Um, and I think that that's, that's the way those conversations should be focused. You know, I think one of the most probable scenarios of a cyber attack, um, you know, being very, very successful is when it's in combination with a, a physical and kinetic attack. Yeah. And yeah. And like, uh, you know, for instance, if you just have someone at a large venue, if there's, you know, whether, no matter what the motive is, whether it's to, uh, have an attack on principle, whether it's to steal money from a safe, whether it's to steal data from a server. If you're attacking a large place in a, in a physical attack and you have a cyber attack that either uh, helps to um, disable the response mechanisms that are in place or actually confuse the, 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 the responders or actually even mislead them, provide them false information, uh, distract them, whatever it may be. Uh, it could be a combination of those things. That's when things become really difficult, I think. And I think um, how do you see any of these types of exercises going on, like in, integrating some of the physical world, the security folks in the physical world into the, the, the cyber, the cyber world and doing joint exercises together? Yeah. And that's, I mean, the, the, now the great X exercise, um, they, they said that, that it did focus on a physical and cyber attack, although they, they didn't give details, um, to the public, uh, Yet, anyway, they're also doing a report after this is this is finished. Um, but I, I have not seen that. I think that um, you know when I discussed the the malware that could override uh, a major um, energy company's safety system, I think that that's the kind of like cyber attack that would really be devastating if a kinetic attack was involved. Um, and you saw that Saudi Aramco uh, had a major uh, attack, uh, an actual physical attack. Um, you know, imagine if a nuclear facility uh, sustained an attack of some type and they had an emergency switch that could shut it, shut it down. That's the whole purpose of the emergency, you know, system uh, in, in case it's overheating and that didn't, did not work. Um, that's where these two things come together into something that, that is really huge. And I think that, that definitely um, that is a scenario that I, I don't know how they could get it together, but um, it certainly doesn't help to have these scenarios always towered within an industry. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they have the, like the local police involved in, in helping or the, uh, the FBI or, you know, whoever else would actually come and do a, a physical response to one of these attacks. 
the military, um, but they should, and I hope that they do. All right, all right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. 
Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, you know, let's talk about some interesting stuff that's going on out there. We got this situation over at Capital One. And I guess last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that they're, they're losing their Cisco. I think they just had a, an incident over there. He, reportedly, he ran into some problems with some folks over there with staff. But look, I mean, uh, I don't even want to get into that because I heard great things about this gentleman. I don't know him personally. I heard wonderful mm-hmm. things about him. But, um, and so that's what I like to say. We're, we're the advocate for the CISO over here. We're not the, 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 the people that are sort of bashing some. Uh, and I hate when other, other CISOs go out and they, they start bashing each other over incidents that happen. Because, I mean, we're all going to have a bad day. But what do you know about what's going on over there? Because it's, it's actually the, 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 a little bit of, there's a lot of talk going on in, in back rooms. And who do you think is on deck over there for that spot? Um, that's, uh, I, I, this is such a fascinating story, um, and I'm so interested to see who they choose. I mean, I think that um, there are a number of things that they'll be looking for in, in a new CISO. And, you know, to your point, I think um, uh, I don't know a single breach incident that I've ever covered or that I even knew about that didn't cover, um, that didn't involve a great deal of uh, internal strife. And I think that it is, um, I don't even know a workplace that doesn't have a lot of internal strife. And I think when something like this happens, um, there is always uh, a lot of uh, looking back and saying, wow, that, that might not have worked out well. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that that's so common uh, as to almost uh, be, be funny. Um, I also think it's, it, it was an interesting move uh, for them to, to uh, let it go. Um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's becoming less and less common to just, um, you know, move this uh, I'm sure that they've, they've got a strategy. Now, I think looking forward, they're going to need a number of things. And this because I think they're covering pretty well from this end. I think that they, they did pretty good, uh, you know, control of like the, the media narrative and everything. Um, but, uh, you know, they're having a little bit of a problem with the fact that there was this overlay with, with AWS. So if you've read, read about this breach and, um, you know, there was a former AWS employee uh, for, who worked for Amazon, was an engineer, um, and, and she allegedly, you know, whether she used Insider Info or not, she exploited something that had been happening um, in an app that was built uh, by Capital One on, on, the, on the cloud service. Um, and there have been a number of legislators who come out and said, why, uh, why did AWS have this problem? It, you know, I'm pretty sure AWS would say it wasn't our problem. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was the, we don't have visibility into the cloud. They built their app on it. Um, but that might not be a distinction that senators and, and <laughs> you know, representatives really can make very well. So, um, you know, there, there's been talk about uh, is Amazon, is it too ubiquitous in the financial sector now? So I think if they're going to bring on a CISO, it's going to be somebody um, who is agnostic to cloud service providers, um, who has a really good government relations background, somebody 
who has experience testifying in front of Congress. Um, I'm thinking of like a Jamil Farshi from Equifax. I'm thinking of, um, you know, you know him and I know him, Anish Bamani uh, from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, and people who have that experience of being a sort of diplomat um, and also somebody who can maybe get credibility with uh, shareholders and with the board. They're going to need somebody who is um, really a, a stand-up speaker and somebody who can talk the language of the CEO. You know, what do you think about these CISOs getting fired and let go after these breaches? I mean, is this fair? Is it really helpful to the organization for, for this to keep happening? I mean, I, I, I just don't see it. At, look, they're trying to secure a very imperfect infrastructure and, and, and network. And the technology that this was all built upon from day one um, is vulnerable to a lot of uh, uh, degree. And you're doing your best to, to secure it. You have all these, like you said, you have insider threats. There's all these other personalities that you're dealing with. And you have to have, you know, a, a whole bunch of very different skill sets to do this job. I mean, is it really, I, I, do you think these CISOs are being used as, as the, sort of the fall guy here? Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they're definitely being used as the fall guy. I think there's no CISO who's, who's not going to have a breach. And I, I think there's no CISO right. who's going to have a big breach. Um, and I, and I, I think that, um, but do I think it's fair? Um, I, that's an interesting question because I think that when you're looking at the calculations of the entire company and then you have these Wall Street Journal articles in this case saying things that are um, very negative about the, the person who was in charge and, and you know, there, there's questions about how things were being run and your customers are angry, then there's, there's a higher level consideration that comes into play of like what's going to be good for the share price, which of, which of course is you know, the ultimate big consideration. Um, and, and so I'm not a person who makes decisions at that level, but it might be the best decision for the company in some cases to move on and then get somebody in place who's going to be very reassuring, who's going to sit in front of Congress and say, well, we had this problem, but now it's going to be better. Um, you know, Equifax, they didn't just get rid of their CISO, they got rid of their CEO, they got rid of a number of other employees, their CIO, um, and sent a whole new um, executive class to Congress when they had congressional hearings, you know, in, in the years following. So I think that it's, it's, there's higher level considerations there than just was it their fault or not. And I think, I think some CISOs, they understand that, but it's still kind of hard to take. It just seems to me like I've never seen anyone get fired for not giving the CISO the resources they needed to do their job. <laughs> I've never seen anyone, you know, get fired yeah. for, you know, and not giving the, the information security team, the technology teams, the support they need, whether it's financial or not, uh, and other resources, you know, personnel, um, and maybe just organizational construct and process. Process is king, right? And yeah. so I've never seen that happen. I always see the CISO, you know, getting taken down, and I just feel like people hire these folks, and they use them as the fall. We're going to hire this person. We're going to place all this accountability and responsibility on them and them only. And you know that's not true, especially with information security, right? It has to, there's accountability across the board with numerous people in the organization, Right, lots of people, especially large organizations, yeah. and in, and if anything happens, you know, we're going to take them down and show everybody we're making a change, and then you know, do whatever. I just, I, I don't know. It just sits. It doesn't sit right with me at all. Um, do you think companies should sort of stay the course after a breach? Because look, isn't it not only okay we were breached, but is it where the the CISO really shows their value is in their response? 
like in the response to the breach and how they how do they contain it how do they mitigate it how do they recover from it right mm-hmm. i mean i think um you know and i'm playing devil's advocate here because uh you know just to do the counterpoint um i think that in in a lot for a lot of CISOs, you know their response if it was good and then they got and afterwards, um, they're going to have plenty of mobility. Um, a lot, uh, you know, it's it's almost on the resume unless unless the, the person who was in charge had some kind of catastrophic failing, um, and we could probably name a few people with, with that. Yeah. But um, you know, it, 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 it's it's so rare. One specific uh, comes to mind. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm keeping. Um, <laughs> uh, so I won't yeah, go there. Not this time. Not today. No, we don't have uh, enough timing to get into that. Really. Yeah, I know. It's like we're running out. Um, but, uh, you know, unless there's a catastrophic failure, that, that person is going to have a lot of leverage in their career to move on. And now that, you'd probably say, well, that's still not fair. Um, it's not. But I think that I think a, that fall guy is almost part of the CISO job description in 2019. Um, I think that, you know, there is no CIO or CSO or whoever on the planet who's not hiring that person thinking, um, you know, I'm not going to go down for this when it goes. And I, that's something yeah. that I want in the person who's coming on. I, I know that sounds really cynical, um, but maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a little bit too broad, but I, I do think that that is, that's part of it. Um, you, you know, whenever these happen and you have the argument, why weren't, why were they under-resourced? And you say, you don't, you don't see people being blamed for it. Um, I, I see the, the pushback being, well, this is oh, never, he never outlined exactly what he needed, or she never told me as she yeah. needed a, so a he bump said, she said thing, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it gets, <laughs> and it, it, it's it gets just messy. Yeah, yeah, it does get messy. And so, so there's only one person with that title. And that's, you know, I think that everybody in the executive class, um, they kind of know that. And that's, Right, it's it right. stinks, but it's true. When you, you know, you mentioned before, uh, you think the person over at Capital One needs, you know, um, communication skills, the person that's going to be able to like sort of carry the torch for information security and, mm-hmm. and communicate with the board. What do you think is the most important characteristic and, and experience that a CISO needs to take a job at a place like Capital One? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's it, it definitely going to have to have financial sector experience. Um, although I, I thought of a couple of, of CISOs who um, I, I was thinking of some uh, uh, folks at Lockheed Martin and some of the big defense industrials where, um, you know, they have that they have that military credibility, but also working at a, at a business um, where they, they do understand the business mentality and they could come into it um, would, would be an interesting choice. Um, now, you know, I'm sort of I'm sort of losing my train of thought because I've got all these names running through my head. But I I think um, I worry sometimes that I'm biased about communication skills being so important because that's my background. Um, but uh, you know it's going to be just absolutely essential. I mean there's there's going to have to be some changes. Um, you know whenever there's a big organizational change, there's going to be downstream organizational changes. I don't know if that's going to be the case at Capital One that they'll be big, but um, you know there will be changes and they, there has to be somebody who can manage that that diplomatically and keep people on board and keep them interested in working there because they, they just can't have a, a, you know, they can't bleed their talent out right now. Um, so it's going to have to be somebody who uh, can manage organizational change in a very good way and who has actual experience with that. Um, it's, it's, that's a tough thing to have experience with, you know, and also be an experienced financial services um, information security person. 
Okay, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us this evening. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's always fun. It's always fun. Yeah. I, mean, we have to, I love having you on because we, you're, oh, you talk you. to so many people and you're just so well connected and, and, and it's just great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, George. I love it. All right, folks, we got to run. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.